Well, I'd like to welcome everyone to East CareerCast. Today we're talking about innovation in surgical training, specifically gaining new surgical skills and um, new techniques after completing residency. Today I'm joined with Arvin G. Uh, he's a assistant professor of surgery and medical director of emergency general surgery at Oregon Health and Science University. And Vijay Jairaman, Vijay is an assistant professor of surgery and the site director for UConn Surgery Residency and the director of surgical education at St. Francis Hospital, uh, which is part of the Trinity Health of New England and Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, thanks so much for uh, being with us. Start us off. Maybe you can tell a little bit about what your um, background is and how you came to your current position. Arvind, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, thanks for the invitation, Laszlo. Um, so I did my residency and fellowship in the surgical critical care, um, both at uh, Oregon Health and Science University. Um, and I finished in 2010. Um, then I took a job at another level one uh, hospital in Portland, Oregon, uh, where it's a private practice model and worked there for about seven years uh, before returning back to Oregon Health and Science University to take up uh, the emergency general surgery uh, directorship. And how about you, Vijay? Hey, thanks for the invite, uh, Laszlo. Yeah, so um, I trained uh, in a couple of places in Milwaukee uh, and uh, finished my training at uh, Christiana Care in Delaware um, after um, you know, we did med school at Northwestern uh, together. But then um, I did a trauma fellowship at Hartford Hospital and some research there. And I finished my critical care training in, in uh, Christiana Care in Delaware. I took my job at uh, St. Francis Hospital because our previous mentor was an attending here, and so we, we got together. It's been, a, it's been an interesting uh, seven years practice. Uh, I finished training in 2013. Great. And uh, as uh, Vijay reminded me, we're long lost medical school classmates from uh, Northwestern. Go Cats. Now we're joined together with uh, East Career Cast. And so one of the first questions I have for you is that Trauma and acute care surgery is often considered maximally invasive surgery. And so what is it that first sparked your interest in developing skills and in newer surgical innovations, specifically minimally invasive and robotic techniques? When you were training, were, were MIS fellowships something that you were considering uh, in addition to or instead of your surgical care fellowships? I could start. Um, I mean, I, I honestly um, was really just a maximal invasive surgeon. I even remember in training some of the attendings who were my mentors in trauma would say exactly that. And I spent a lot of time uh, gravitating towards uh, the trauma surgery things, the big open hernias, uh, the more uh, complex open exposure, the cancer cases, so that I could get uh, involved in that. And you know, I uh, became an asset instructor, which is basically how to expose maximally. And it was interesting because when I took my job at um, hospital in Connecticut, uh, the Yukon residents were very, very skilled at minimal invasive surgery, but did not have much experience with maximal stuff. So it almost began, they sort of pushed me um, and my boundaries and limits in minimal invasive. And within a couple of years, I found that I was doing a ton of stuff which I would have started uh, open, uh, starting with a camera. 
And so it was sort of a paradigm shift in that sense. The robotics was uh, an interesting step too, because it's basically a resource and um, mentor availability. We had uh, two robotic platforms here and no general surgery interest. And we hired a new director of robotic surgery. And so we now had an in-house proctor, a chair who's willing to uh, get us to learn this thing, and almost a wide open uh, block time for general surgery. So that's kind of what started that. And this, I didn't actually think I was going to do a lot of, um, you know, just expand the general surgery practice as a trauma surgeon. But my initial thought was, you know, maybe I should learn this because in 10 years, we're going to be doing a lot more with robots and smaller robots in various different areas. So might as well jump on the bandwagon now. That's interesting. And I think it's important for residents listening to this podcast that often they have much more influence on us than we think. And I say that from my uh, dinosaur perspective, where uh, I think it's often the resident that asks me, can we try to do this laparoscopically? And I have various responses to that question sometimes. How about you, Arvin? What uh, um, first got you interested in this? I went through residency trying to avoid minimally basic surgeries. I just, it, um, never felt comfortable to me. My body always hurt after those cases, you know, it's the whole ergonomic thing. When I got into practice as an attending, you had sort of a lack of really advanced MIS capable surgeons where I was working. Part of it was sort of like, well, I learned all these operations in residency, I can do them, I might as well, you know, try to fill that niche. But the, the key case that really kind of got me thinking that I should probably applies to one of these MIS skills more widely is I remember I had a patient who got stabbed in the left upper quadrant and walked into the hospital with momentum sticking out. And so I took him to the OR and did, you know, a standard giant trauma laparotomy and quickly realized that I made a much bigger stab wound than the other guy did. So that was the case that got me thinking I should probably start sticking scopes in more frequently. And so that's just sort of started me down that path. With robotics, um, Curiously enough, the burn surgeons at our hospitals had gotten into it, and my OR coordinator pointed the Da Vinci rep towards me and said, you know, he does the most MIS around here. You should talk to him. And he whittled at me for about six months or so, and I finally said, okay, sure, I'll try it, and sort of dabbled with it. Wasn't really sure if I was going to do it or not, and then finally got enough cases by me that I could do a parasophageal hernia with it, and suddenly the light bulb went off where I'm like, Oh, I have a role use, you know, for this, this platform in my case load. Got um, it. What about DJ? Was there like an index case for you that kind of turned on the light bulb that this is something that you can apply and be, and we're very interested in? I think a little more about the minimal invasive piece. I think, um, the two areas that I did that in emergency general surgery was bowel obstruction and colon, um, so diverticular case. I think it was about the time when um, diverticular um, perforation, uh, it, it was in vogue to uh, do a washout and uh, then do a staged um, minimal invasive uh, resection. So I was kind of um, getting involved in that and I felt that, okay, I can through to see about expanding my minimal invasive work. As far as the robotics, um, because I, my stance was more about learning uh, a new platform, I 
decided to just become a complete adopter. And so what that meant was basically everything that I was booking uh, from the office, um, I would find a way to throw down the robot because that, to me, that was the only way um, with the limited journal surgery volume that we had uh, to get some uh, traction with the skill. So the audience knows, I mean, we, when I first started here, a couple of my partners and I decided that because the residents had minimal experience with open hernia surgery, that we would uh, do all our uh, unilateral hernias open because they didn't have that experience because everyone was doing uh, tips. And so when this started um, uh, being something that I was interested in, I immediately switched over everything to laparoscopic and uh, struggled through some taps and taps um, as I was approaching my uh, robotic training uh, course and um, future practice cases. And I, I guess to follow up on that, you know, I think what this is describing is a little bit of an alteration on the usual way we traditionally acquire skills, which is, you know, residency, you know, you go down to clinical practice, but then people do add skills with like workshops and mentoring. And so you, uh, so Vijay, you just mentioned that maybe it sounds like one of the first steps is just to do more of these minimally invasive uh, cases. So what was like the first step? Did you take a course and did the institution support you when you were trying to do these minimally invasive cases for the first time that were not being done in that fashion before? I think from uh, qualification, just like Arvind, we've done them in residency, so just mainly uh, applying more, um, uh, you know, directed and uh, uh, more putting, just switching gears, uh, literally, um, because we were already certified to do them. But to do the robotics piece, uh, similar to Arvin, I think I relied heavily on the rep, and they set us up with a, a course at uh, the intuitive headquarters back then where we could travel. And the department supported that. Um, and then the next step was lining up cases to be proctored on. I think we had to do five or six cases after the training. So I remember I basically lined up six or seven cases over a week. I told my partners, look, I'm doing this. Can I be off service? And I went and did the course and came back. And the lucky thing for me is that a lot of times you have to get a proctor to come to the institution, but our director of robotics was a proctor. And so it was much more straightforward. So yeah, industry support was there, and then that's sort of the mindset. How about Arvin? How about you? Did you uh, kind of take a similar approach in terms of taking a course? Yeah. In boot so, camp? so intuitive um, over time has sent me to about four courses down in um, Sunnyvale at their headquarters. Both you know starting from just basic this is a robot to how to do advanced colorectal kind of operations, as well as like single port surgery, which I've never actually done on the robot. And when I came back, uh, the requirements for to, to get privileges is that you had to have your first three or four cases proctored. None of the general surgeons there had enough cases behind them to be proctors. So I hired a, one of the gynecologists um, to be my proctor. And I remember the first time I'm doing this, I'm doing an operation for the first time, sitting across the room from the patient. And my gynecologist ecologist proctor was like, okay, I looked, up the, I looked this up on YouTube last night. I hope you know how to do the operation. And she was great. She showed me all the things I needed to know about little nuances about using that robotic platform at the time. Right. And when you say hired, did, was that like a, as a fee or is that a volunteer basis? Uh, paid out of my pocket. Got it. 
And so this is something that you were kind of personally committed to. Um, yeah. Right. And and so I guess that follows up, and that 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 certainly was a barrier, you know, to you gaining those skills. Did you take any follow up steps or follow up courses after that initial boot camp, or was it more just clinical practice? There was clinical practice, and then um, they would occasionally have a more advanced courses. You know, like I had mentioned, um, a single port one in the previous iteration of the robotic platform, they had a single port system set up and I took the course and I never really found a use for it in my practice. And then I also did went to advanced colorectal one and some other another fourth one. I can't remember which, what it was at this point. How about you, VJ, after that initial course? Um, yeah, I think uh, after I did my proctor thing and I was ready to um, I was waiting for the credential committee to meet. Um, I started basically like before, just moved all my elective work onto the robotic platform. So I basically was doing a lot, uh, inguinal hernia, some, some ventral hernia that was less complicated. And a lot of these gallbladders where you've had a percolate tube for a while, um, I feel it's a nice uh, area to apply that uh, technique, but also just regular gallbladders too, colchicectomy, just to get some numbers in and get used to you know, where the camera's gonna go, where the instruments are gonna go. And so I think um, over the next six months, I kind of became very comfortable with some of that stuff. And then uh, we had a unique thing happen. Um, it doesn't usually happen maybe, or uh, may happen at different sites, but for some reason, the administration um, decided that we may not need one of our robots. And they um, generated this fierce competition to book robotic cases, almost with a uh, carrot that the robot would be moving to a sister hospital if we didn't get enough cases on the book. It was very, it was a fascinating time. I remember that, that, that because, sounds like a, that sounds like a stick, not a carrot. Yeah, it was a stick. Um, uh, we we took it as a carrot though because I ended up um, because of this need. I got two of my partners to get credentialed in robotics, and we basically booked every acute care case we could on the robot. I, I remember, as I won't do this maybe uh, too often, but I even did a, a perforated appendix on there. And um, I had, uh, I, I basically did, I recreated an open operation on the robot um, and taught my chief resident how to do that. So we were doing a lot of, uh, a lot of things on there. Um, and so uh, I, it helped me with uh, just getting more familiar with the uh, system, but got two of my partners to be credential too. And so uh, they've been doing hernias and gallbladders and some of those, you know, incarcerated or strangulated femoral hernias. It's a nice way to uh, fix that, look at the bowel. Uh, I was gonna say, I think one of the challenges that I had was at a time I was starting to learn maybe six years ago now, there wasn't a large general surgery presence in the robotic sphere. And so a lot of the operations weren't described. Um, and so I had to kind of figure out how to do them and extrapolate it from extrapolate how to do them from how I do them laparoscopically. And that became that was one of the challenges to have to surmount because there was no guide as to how to do these operations or how to set it up. And uh, and with that, I think Arvin and Vijay, you both mentioned you had kind of local support and uh, you know, mentorship and training. Was there anyone national that you look to in terms of getting advice on how you're going to apply these techniques or develop these techniques in any of the societies? So I guess um, my 
the source I use a lot, actually. There's, um, it's incredible. But on Facebook, we have the uh, community, and there's two uh, two major ones. I think there's a robotic surgical society, and then there's a, a robotic surgical community, and then there's um, international hernia collaboration. Um, and both of those have some pretty heavy hitters who are um, MIS fellow uh, fellowship directors and uh, very involved with uh, posting their work um, and instructional videos step by step. A lot of discussion about nuances of techniques and pitfalls. And so, I mean, you know, Arvin mentioned uh, that the gynecologist looked at YouTube, but I think you can you can study these things uh, critically uh, as a surgeon, almost like um, you're reading a textbook for a case and sort of formulate a plan and figure out exactly how to uh, tackle a case. And what I would do is um, on, on the tail end of that, I'd have my local uh, mentor. And if there's something that's a little bit outside the realm of what I was comfortable with, I may even book the case together. Um, and we'd, um, you know, he'd sort of assist me in, uh, in that process. So that's how I use more national health. I didn't actually seek out a national mentor, but I know that Stages has uh, resources, and I think um, at the last East meeting, we had a minimum basis uh, platform um, at, the, at the conference. Yeah, and I would echo those resources. I used those a lot early on and sort of posed questions to the group, like, hey, how do you put the, where do you put your ports? And for robotics, that's a lot, a much bigger deal than it is for laparoscopy. And then for more local regionally, um, Matt Martin, who's also a member of East and WST, would work, you know, Couple times a month over at my last institution, and he does um, a lot of robotics and lap, you know, advanced laparoscopy. So I'd hit him up for ideas, or hey, can you show me how to do that, or how are you going to do this? And you know, would pop in and watch him set up a case. Um, so that was an opportunity to to have a you know a little bit of in person learning. Great, um, you know, getting cool. into the, oh, do you have something, VJ? No, I'm just saying it's cool to have Matt Martin back around. It's pretty nice. <laughs> it is always cool to have Matt Martin around. One question I had is that you uh, you mentioned some of the the, the technical uh, difficulties of doing some of these techniques in both of these in these areas. What came as surprisingly easy when you're doing things, you know, laparoscopic and robotically that were traditionally done open? You mean like what operations or yeah, operations or parts of operations. I think suturing yeah. at the opposite ends of the of the abdomen, up, up, either up in the hiatus or down in the pelvis, certainly those are two areas that are traditionally kind of hard to work with or work in laparoscopically. So robotic stuff made it a lot easier, um, just robotically or laparoscopically doing a, a you know a parasophageal hernia is a lot easier than trying to do it open. Sure. Yeah, I think approaching anything. Um... To do with suturing uh, is is a lot easier than laparoscopy. Like, um, I had a really bad, um, a difficult gallbladder colchicectomy early on, uh, where someone had, had multiple operations and adhesions. So I ended up having uh, making a um, a bowel injury in one of the port insertions. And instead of converting to open, which I would have done in a heartbeat, I was able to isolate the injury and do a two-layer closure. To my satisfaction, uh, that I would do open, 
um, and completing a case minimum basically. So I think it, it, it gives you that uh, bit of flexibility and, and comfort doing that as you get more experience. Um, I think things like uh, just moving tissue as well is a little different. I think you can use um, the wrist of the instrument, uh, push things over. Uh, you can sort of grasp for things as you would do open. Like I'm almost visualize um, being having your hands in there in the space as opposed to uh, laparoscopically where you don't necessarily feel that way. Um, the biggest one of the biggest challenges, which I don't even think about now, is the haptics, and, uh, and we're getting into the weeds now with actual uh, bits and pieces of robotic technology. But uh, since there's no haptics, you learn to see uh, pressure uh, and see the touch. Um, and I think if you have uh, experience with laparoscopy, uh, I think it's easy to transition there. Um, but that's something you have to get used to. It's kind of funny, the, the sorry, Basel, the, the visualization piece of it. Um, I actually think learning how to see tension visually actually made me a better laparoscopic surgeon because then I started seeing things that I just, I don't think I ever noticed before. Yep, agree. One, uh, my next follow-up is for you is in terms of challenges is that um, surgeons sometimes at our worst, we're uh, political, we set up silos, we're territorial. And so did you have any of these barriers? Uh, and so Arvin, you were at uh, a private practice institution and now at an academic institution. Did you have uh, any hurdles you had to um, jump or barriers to implementing a robotic or advanced minimally invasive practice in the setting of other surgeons that were that were already doing that um i think that's been one of the challenges coming back um to a highly subspecialized um university um there's a lot of uh, territory that people are trying to defend and um I think there was uh, at least initially some surprise that I was doing some of these operations without having uh, an MIS fellowship um, certificate behind me. Um, you know, I think, you know, several years into it now, I don't think it's, you know, I think I've kind of demonstrated I can do these, but I know initially there was a lot of uh, surprise, perhaps even skepticism. VJ, yeah. how about you? Similar here. I mean, um, I think one of the hurdles is um, your OR staff. I'm surprised that you're doing this minimum invasive case. And then um, there's a lot of pushback from anesthesia and the OR staff. If you're in a new place or, or bringing new, um, using a robot in some places where uh, it hasn't been done before. Um, and especially if you're trying to do it acute care at night. Um, there's a lot of pushback for that uh, in terms of training and such, and you just keep working at it. And um, if you're patient, you know, I just uh, I think a few months ago I did a um, more of a uh, urgent uh, hernia in the middle of the night, and I my my uh, OR nurse was she's basically runs our trauma OR, and she's never done a minimal invasive case. Uh, and so she said, you really want to do this on the robot? And he said, 
yeah, I'll show you. It's going to be fine. So I went through like the whole setup and everything. And she, she actually thanked me for it afterwards because she'd been dragging her feet uh, to get involved with robotics. And she walked away from that thing. You know, I thought this would be horrible and scary, but you know, you made it uh, fun and uh, it was good. So I think having the right attitude and, and trying to figure it out helps too. Uh, the other barrier is volume. And I'm not sure you had this, Arvind, but if you're covering critical care, trauma, CGS, and when do you have time to put on enough cases that you can actually uh, grow? And then if you're a teaching place, um, almost immediately the residents want to join you. Um, so that was an interesting um, uh, setup for me. And I, I kind of had to like uh, burn the candle at both ends a little bit initially uh, to get to a comfort level. Yeah, that's one of the challenges I have here is you know, um, actually access to the machine. So I get on average one day a month of robot time and because my time is so limited on the machine, pretty much the only cases I'm booking on there are ones that are expected to be very difficult laparoscopically. Um, and so they make it hard uh, to do as a full-on teaching case for someone who doesn't have a lot of robotic experience. You know, certainly there are parts of every operation I try to get the residents on when they have a resident, um, but that's one of the challenges. And I um, can't even do these at night um, simply because of staffing issues. Um, and uh, you know, a lot most of the cases I would do at night, minimum basically, you know, just as easy to do them uh, laparoscopically. So it sounds like both of you, it's just a matter of for the start of cases, just getting enough done, and that kind of breaks down the barriers of you actually being accepted in, in scheduling cases. Um, what about what's on the horizon for for MIS in acute care surgery? What are you most excited about? I think for me, part of it is trying to use it more frequently or, or you know, apply it more liberally to a variety of cases. Um, you know, with acute care, you know, trauma in particular, it becomes kind of challenging depending, I mean, it really depends on patient's physiology what else is going on, whether or not we just need to do this as an open operation just to move really fast. Um, you know, cause for most operations, I can probably do it faster open. Not always, some. Um, but there's certain operations I haven't done in a while, minimally basically, just because I haven't been able to find, you know, an appropriate patient, like diaphragm uh, lacerations. Those are, you know, in the right patient, those are great MIS cases. But again, it's got to, you got to, sort of identify that one, you know, the patients who are appropriate for that operation. Um, and then I think part of this is trying to figure out how to make the, the indications or appropriateness a little bit more broad as we get more comfortable, and our team's more comfortable doing these cases on uh, injured or particularly sick patients. I second that. I'm not sure that there's um, currently a role to dock a robot in a trauma x because you're just there's too many uh, balls in the air in terms of hemorrhagic shock, um, some sort of vascular injury, uh, something. You, you're working very quickly, and and you then also have to deal with uh, coordinating uh, this robot. It, it doesn't necessarily work in that context. I think the application I'm excited about is more of these emergency surgeries where we have to make big incisions, as Arvin had mentioned, and now we can. Uh, put three small incisions and take care of like a perforated ulcer or a, um, a bowel obstruction or a hernia. Um, 
used um, in the sign in green sometimes, where we take a thermal hernia uh, to check for viability of the bowel and then the reception. There's uh, some interesting things there. The other thing I'm excited about is Intuitive is not the only game in town. Um, and I think within five years, you're going to have an explosion of multiple platforms that are all vying for uh, an edge in terms of uh, how small the instruments are, how capable the instruments are, and what you can do. Uh, so I think we're going to, this sort of process of learning a new skill, we're going to have to repeat over and over again. I think we have to get comfortable with the um, being uncomfortable uh, in order to progress. And I think that's what, I think that's probably a bigger point from this podcast is that, you know, you do have to get a fellowship training, but sometimes even fellowship, you might have to learn something new and how do you get to do that. I'm also excited if um, this world of middle invasive fan chest wall construction so um, yeah i think it's almost uh that's almost deserving of its own separate podcast uh chest wall reconstruction and uh we're kind of running to the end of our podcast and as a fellowship director one thing i've noticed is that uh, i have a couple fellow applicants this year that are completing or have completed the mis fellowship and now are going to surgical critical care the east has a wide membership of students residents and fellows and so do you each have some advice for this kind of up and coming group that are entering trauma and acute care surgery, but also have this interest in MIS robotics and new techniques in general? I think it's a great place to start. I mean, the MIS fellowship, um, you know, as, as friends of mine told me a couple of years ago when I was thinking about maybe going back and doing wonder, you know, the MIS fellowship is gets you that first job and gets you that sort of launching, um, or running start, if you will. Um, and, you know, you can learn it sort of over a longer period of time, like we did during training. I mean, we learned MIS during residency, but just sort of really getting into the weeds of it um, after fellowship and after training. Um, these fellow applicants who have already finished or finishing MIS training, they've got that running start. Um, it'll be fun to see what areas or how, how they push the boundaries. Yeah, I, I, I concur with that. I think, um, I think if you know that you want to do complex robotic hernias and things as part of your practice are, um, you know, seriously, which I think there's, it's hard to imagine um, if you're uh, really excited about trauma and want to go and do trauma and critical care, Hard to imagine that you'd have a primary focus of that, uh, but if you do, I think that I think a fellowship would be necessary. Um, I think, on the other hand, I think always keep an open mind, and I, there's always a way to learn something new um, if you have supportive uh, faculty or mentors. Um, and I think you have to approach it the way you approach any procedure that you're learning in residency. And so my big advice to students and residents is figure that out, figure out how to learn a technique and uh, really pay attention and master your skills during your training um, so that when you go and learn something new, you know how that works for you um, and what you need to be comfortable. And also sort of along those lines, learning how to critically evaluate those new techniques, whether or not it's, is this something that's a really good idea or is this kind of a passing fad? 
um, is this going to provide improved care? Well, fantastic. I'd like to thank you both, uh, Vijay and Arvind, so much for joining us on East uh, CareerCast. And if it's okay with you, I'm having an open invite to listeners to tweet at you with questions regarding MIS and acute care surgery. That sound reasonable? Sounds great. That's great with me. Let's do it. All right. Thank you so much. And we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Okay. Thanks again for the invite. Thanks. Thank you, Lazo. Nice to see you guys. Nice to see you.